Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. Thanks for joining me. On today's episode, we begin part four, dun da 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 the section on prayer. So once again, way to go, way to persevere. And here we are in the last part of the catechism. So thanks for making this journey. On the second half of today's episode, we will read paragraphs 2558 through 2597. And as in the first section of each of the other parts of the catechism, here the catechism speaks generally about the topic, in this case prayer. And then in the second part, excuse me, the second section, of part four, the catechism speaks specifically of an example of prayer or about an example of prayer. And in this case, it speaks line by line about the Our Father. So today we'll talk um, a little generally about prayer. And I'd like to begin with an analogy that I think I mentioned on a previous episode, maybe way back in the beginning of the podcast. And the the analogy is this. I heard I was on a Kairos retreat when I was teaching at one of the archdiocesan high schools in Philadelphia, and a colleague of mine was giving a talk to the students. So the student leaders and then the either teachers, parents, adult leaders would give various talks throughout the weekend. And he, this, his name was Dennis. Um, he was a science teacher. He gave a talk about, basically about the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity becoming a human being, stepping into our timeline, walking among us, and then to top it off, he suffers and dies, gives his life out of love for us. Like, wow. Um, so he used the analogy of a goldfish. He said, imagine you have a pet goldfish and you just love that goldfish so much that you decide to try to communicate your love to this goldfish, this, this pet whom you just, you just love and you want to have a relationship with, you decide to become a goldfish so that you can enter the fishbowl, you can swim with your fish, and really try to communicate your love um, by becoming like this little fishy. And then, you know, he goes on to explain, like, and imagine that that fish um, is in need of reconciliation. And so you, as a fellow fish, decide to sacrifice your love for, for love of this, this pet fish. And the fish just, just doesn't understand. It doesn't quite get it and thinks, like, you're enforcing your, your fellow fishy rules on uh, him or her. And, you know, this, this fish rejects you and, and doesn't accept the, the sacrificial love you are, you are there to offer after you have condescended um, and, and given up your human life where you can experience things like the Grand Canyon and Mozart and Beethoven and grocery shopping and driving a car to basically subject yourself to this little confined fishy life. And so I think I've gone back to that that talk in my mind and that analogy because it's so it's just so ridiculous. Um, the thought of a human being, a rational human being with with an intellect and a free will, um, who is so far above and beyond this tiny little goldfish. When I think of goldfish, I often think of you know like these cheap little pets that we went at the fair and a few weeks later, like we flush them down the toilet because they don't make it. <laughs> They don't make it that long. Um, it's just such a ridiculous analogy, but it, in its ridiculousness, it gets to the heart of what what God has done for us. Like it's it's ridiculous. It's crazy, crazy that God, the infinite God, who didn't have to create the world, who in His triune communal love was just fine, just fine for all of eternity, giving and receiving love, being in communion. Um, with the other members of the Trinity, united in love and life and truth and goodness and beauty. Um, God did not have to. God has no need. There was nothing missing, nothing lacking. God did not need to create. And after creating and then being rejected by his creation, he condescends to step into our human timeline, to become a finite human being, which, because he's God, as we've talked about previously in the, the catechism, is, is an interesting discussion point because he is simultaneously the infinite God and takes on finite human flesh. Um, it's just ridiculous that God would do that. Like, who would do that? But that's what we believe, and that's the truth. God is so crazy, crazy in love with us, um, that he wills us into existence. He sustains our existence. And then when we reject him, he 
he steps into our finiteness. He he leaves, you know, to go back to the analogy of the the human owner of the pet fish. He leaves this expansive, incredible, beautiful world to go into this tiny little glass fishbowl <laughs> where, you know, physically like you can't get too far and then I don't know if existentially is the right word, um, symbolically, I don't know. It, it You can't get to, well, yeah, physically you can't get to Paris, France. You can't get to Rio de Janeiro. Um, but you can't get to poetry and philosophy and all these other incredible things that human beings can enjoy. You, you, you confine yourself to this this tiny little space out of love for this creature who oftentimes doesn't get it and doesn't care and you know, openly rejects this truth and this, this love. So it's just, again, I go back to that analogy because it's just so silly, but the truth, the reality, the, the good news, the gospel is that, um, that God is that, that wild, that incredible, and that willing to go to the ends of the earth, the ends of not just the earth, but the depths of Sheol, um, to retrieve us and bring us back and invite us into ultimately this this glorious existence. And so I start with this and speaking of prayer because like many things about which we've talked, obeying the commandments, attending the sacraments, uh, living the moral life, God does not need our prayer. So it's not like God's, you know, poised and ready, waiting as though something will be will be what filled up in him, completed in him, um, if we pray. No, God's fine. He's good. Um, I, I would I would almost say he doesn't care, but he he does care because he loves us. He wants us to pray because, like all of these other things, commandments and sacraments and um, you know the moral life, uh, it's for us for our happiness, and God wills our happiness. He wills our joy. He wills our fulfillment and our perfection as human beings uh, in this life and the next. And so I think um, as we prepare to enter in just a couple weeks the Advent season leading up to Christmas where we see you know, this great moment of condescension where the infinite God becomes a tiny little baby dependent on other finite human beings in a stinky little manger in, you know, the outpost in this dark corner of the world. Um, It's just such a beautiful thing on which we can reflect and um, model. So when we have these, these moments of of suffering or these opportunities for humility or we're humiliated, you know, in our jobs or in, whatever, like day-to-day circumstances, um, we can just pause for a moment and think like, wow, you know who else did this and did it willingly out of love for me? God. And how awesome is that? How beautiful is that? So it is just wild that God created us, that he suffered and died for us, and that he continues to draw close to us and invites us into this life with him. So he invites us into a life of prayer so that we can be we can converse with him. We can come into communion with him. Again, not because he needs anything or it like boosts his godly ego, but because it's so good for us and it makes us happy, not just in the, ne- the next life, but but even now. Um, sometimes when I pray, I think that God is listening to me just like, uh, like okay, that's that's a cute little prayer. That's funny. Like that's the thing that you're worried about. And I think, I think this way because I'm in a stage of life where um, – my kids are are in the mode of like, mom, look at this. Okay, mom, watch me do this headstand. Okay, wait, that wasn't it. Watch me do this cartwheel. No, that wasn't it. And then like 17 times later, okay, that no, that wasn't it. One more time, like, ah. Um, or, you know, they'll, Peter's in preschool, and so he's bringing home um, 572 fall-themed crafts right now in the months of October and November. And it's like, oh, that's, that's so great. I love that pumpkin. He's like, mom, it's a leaf. I love that leaf. No, it's actually a ghost. I'm like, ah, what is this? So sometimes I just imagine um, God like, oh, that was such a nice little prayer. Like, good job. But the truth is, as, as rough as that like finger-painted prayer is, that finger-painting leaf, aka my prayer is, um, 
God sees into our hearts and minds and he sees the he sees the the effort and he sees the desire and he sees that opening where he can enter in and just fill us with more of his blessed life. I haven't quoted that that very first paragraph from the catechism in a while, so I'll quote it here. God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. So God invites us to prayer so that we are open to receive more and more of his own blessed life, that life of happiness. And unlike I, who don't want to get up out of my chair to see, you know, one more cartwheel or one more headstand, Declan was trying to show me something the other day and I was kind of across the room. I was like, oh, that looks great. And he looks up at me with this deadpan face. He goes, mom, you can't see it from there. Come here. (laughs) Why are you so smart? Um, God is constantly getting up out of his chair to be with us, to see us, to hear us, to enter more deeply into communion with us. And he doesn't tire of it because he loves us. And he wants what's best for us. And again, as imperfect and kind of rough as our prayers, our desires, our praise, our offerings are, he he sees into our hearts, uh, he sees into our minds, and he knows uh, what, what we're trying to put forth. And then he takes that and then he makes it even better. He multiplies it for our fulfillment, for our happiness. Paragraph 2562 says, where does prayer come from? Whether prayer is expressed in words or gestures, it is the whole man who prays. But in naming the source of prayer, scripture speaks sometimes of the soul or the spirit, but most often of the heart. In fact, more than a thousand times throughout scripture. According to scripture, it is the heart that prays. If our heart is far from God, the words of prayer are in vain. So it's not the words, it's not... um, you know, the the movement of the rosary beads. It's not whether we're sitting, standing, or kneeling, but it's the, the heart being lifted up to God that is most important in our prayer. Paragraph 2563 goes on to say, the heart is the dwelling place where I am, where I live. According to the Semitic or biblical exp- expression, the heart is the place to which I withdraw. The heart is our hidden center beyond the grasp of our reason and of others. Only the Spirit of God can fathom the human heart and know it fully. The heart is the place of decision, deeper than our psychic drives. It is the place of truth, where we choose life or death. It is the place of encounter, because as image of God, we live in relation. It is the place of covenant. Paragraph 2570 goes on to say, such attentiveness of the heart. So here the catechism speaking of of God's relationship with Abraham. When God calls him, Abraham goes forth as the Lord had told him. Abraham's heart is entirely submissive to the word and so he obeys. Such attentiveness of the heart whose decisions are made according to God's will is essential to prayer. While the words used count only, excuse me, count only in relation to it. So it's not so much... Um, the words or how we arrange the words, but our our heart that's lifting up the meaning of these words. And again, as 2562 just said, if our heart is far from God, the words of prayer are in vain. So it's that attentiveness of the heart, the lifting up of our hearts to God, and the words try to verbalize what's there, but but that's not the most important part. It's it's the very center of our being that we're trying to lift up to God, bring into communion with God, be uh, place ourselves in a that that center. We're trying to open up to um, all that God wants to share with us, give to us, ultimately ask of us. So, how does one pray, quote unquote, from one's heart or with this attentiveness of heart? Well, I'm so glad you asked because paragraph 2559 gives us the answer. Humility is the foundation of prayer. Only when we humbly acknowledge that we do not know how to pray as we ought are we ready to receive freely the gift of prayer. And then St. Augustine says, man is a beggar before God. So we come before God trying to lift up our hearts, trying to be attentive in our hearts, trying to place the very center of our being before the Lord and or invite God into the very center of our being. And God knows, we know that it's kind of like, this fumbling, mumbling, ah, here's what I have to offer you, God. But God sees through that into the heart and wants to give us the words, give us the grace, um, fortify us, open us up to receive the more. 
And so what do we do? We humbly, faithfully come before God saying, God, I don't know how to do this perfectly, um, but please give me the words. Give me the disposition. Help me place before you the center of my being. Please come into the center of my being and show me the way. And as we come again, faithfully, faithfully, faithfully before God every day, come hell or high water, and we ask him for the grace to pray, and then we ask him for the grace to pray well. He is faithful. He's a God of, of faithful to his promises. And so he will give us the words. He will help us um, get better at this, be more open to this, and bring us to the new heights that he has in mind for each of us. We live in a culture that emphasizes feelings and emotions and like those aha or lightning moments in prayer or in our faith. And sometimes uh, for for many of us, I don't know if for all of us, but uh, for many of us, we do get those little consolations along the way. So we get those aha lightning moments or we get a feeling of like, yes, this is resonating with me and maybe with you, Jesus. I hope so. <laughs> um Some of us don't receive that or maybe have never received that, and that's okay because feeling is not the test of a good prayer. And so God does not say throughout Scripture, Jesus does not say in the Gospels, like, blessed are those who feel things or blessed are those who get the warm fuzzies when they pray. No, he he emphasizes again and again directly and then through parables, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. Ask seek, find, ask, seek, find, lather, rinse, repeat, persevere, 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 and you will receive it. You will receive it. You will receive it. Your prayers will be answered. Um, You will experience the joy and fulfillment for which you are made. And how exactly that looks or feels uh, might be different for different people. We're entering into that uh, Hallmark Christmas movie season. Maybe we've already entered it. Um, and so, you know, our prayer life might, might not always feel like cozy sweaters and hot chocolate with little marshmallows. Um, maybe for some of us, it does feel that way sometimes. Uh, what scripture and tradition tell us is that God often gives us those consolations at the beginning of our prayer life, at the beginning of our faith journey to encourage us um, to keep going and like enter this journey, you know, dig in, this is the right path. And then as we progress, this is what scripture and tradition tell us, as we progress, those consolations, those warm fuzzies actually become fewer and far farther between. When I was studying abroad in Austria, my sophomore year at Steubenville, we had a priest, a lot of people would visit the campus, and we had a priest visit, and a couple of my girlfriends and I just happened to have lunch with him one day, and he talked about how in our journey with God, you know, oftentimes he greets us at the gates of the garden, like, yay, you're here, this is awesome, like, here we go, and there's lots of consolation, there's lots of good feeling, there's lots of affirmation to to help us, like, to really jettison us, you know, on the path. And then as we walk with the Lord through the garden, he he starts to hide himself so that, you know, we look around and it's like, uh, Lord, are you still here? Am I on the right path? And then, you know, he pops out again, walks with us a little further, and then might hide himself. Uh, in other words, hide the, not give us the consolation, the feelings of affirmation. Um, because when we don't f- necessarily feel things, it purifies our desire to follow the Lord. In other words, I'm not just following Jesus because it makes me feel good, um, or I'm not following Jesus in the like Joel Osteen prosperity gospel kind of kind of way in that like, you know, if, if I follow Jesus, I'm going to be rich and happy and, um, you know, the world will fall at my feet because like, it's the Lord and this is the truth and it's all good. No, <laughs> Jesus tells us again and again, like if if the world persecuted me, it's going to persecute you. <laughs> um, if the world hates me, just remember, excuse me, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. And it's like, oh, wow, what a prize for being a Christian. Sign me up. <laughs> that sounds fun. Um, but God will, again, he gives us consolation oftentimes in the beginning so that we we enter this journey. <laughs> As I say this, it sounds kind of like God's tricking us, like, ha, 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 here we go. This is going to be fun. And then like, ha, ha, I tricked you. <laughs> no, God is not out to trick us or to get us. But he he will oftentimes remove those consolations, those feelings of affirmation um, to purify our desires, 
purify our, our faith, our prayer life, so that we're not following him because it makes us feel good, but we're following him for him because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is, as St. Peter said, to whom else shall we go? <laughs> like, you're it, Lord. So why would I turn to anything else? Because whether I feel good um, and, again, get the warm fuzzies or not, like, you're it. So here we go. <laughs> So if you are not experiencing consolation in your prayer life or in your faith journey, maybe, I'll just offer a word of encouragement, uh, maybe that is because God, God's bringing you a little a little deeper down the path or a little further along the way, um, and he's purifying your your faith, your relationship with him, um, which is which is good news. You're you're growing in your faith, which is which is awesome. It doesn't always feel awesome, um, but it is objectively awesome. I'll just I'll just say that. Just this past week, we had the gospel passage about the persistent widow from the Gospel of Luke, chapter eighteen, where I love how the the gospel opens with this line: Jesus told his disciples a parable about the necessity for them to pray always without becoming weary. Pray always without becoming weary. It's it's tiring. Life is hard, but pray always without becoming weary. And then I also love the line a little bit later. The, so the judge, I think the unjust judge, he's referred to as, um, it says like he fears neither God nor other human beings, but he basically gets annoyed with this woman, <clears throat> and he says because this widow keeps bothering me, <laughs> dot dot dot, like fine, I'll listen to her, <laughs> and I giggle because. God doesn't get bothered by us. Um, <clears throat> again, God is unchangeable, unflappable. But that invitation to persistence, to ask, seek, knock, ask, seek, knock, persevere, persevere, persevere. Um, again, it's for us. And what happens when we persevere? What? Why does God sometimes, uh, or maybe oftentimes, withhold, it seems like, withhold an answer to our prayers or delay the answering of our prayers or have us traverse this journey before our prayer is, is ultimately answered? And it could be for a couple reasons. One, if our prayer is answered in the way we we ultimately hope it will be answered, or maybe we start you know, with, I, I want my prayer to be answered this way, and then it's answered that way. The journey could be to help us appreciate it in the end. If our prayers are instantly answered, we receive instant gratification. We might not appreciate the gift, or our hearts might not be open to receive all of that gift that God wants to give us. Uh, That journey could be for giving us the opportunity for our hearts to be changed over time. We start with a certain prayer, and by the end, we're, we're thanking God for not answering the prayer the way in which we thought would be best. Like, whoa, this is way better, and thank God you didn't give me what I was initially asking for or help me achieve what I initially set out to achieve, Lord. And then lastly, it might be that as we as we pray, 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 persevere, persevere, ask, seek, knock, <clears throat> we gather other people uh, with us as we pray. Uh, we, we join our prayers, our hearts, our lives together so that more people are experiencing by the end of this prayer journey uh, the graces, the gifts, the blessings that these these prayers are bringing down from heaven that ultimately God wants to give to all of us. Um, but he he kind of gathers this this group to receive it together, which is an, an added blessing. So again, as we strive to grow in our prayer lives, the catechism encourages us to to strive for humility. And we strive for humility because first God was humble. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God himself entering our finite human world in a stinky little manger, that idea just never gets old. It's just, we would expect a hundred other ways that he might come to us, floating down on a cloud, appearing after a bolt of lightning hits the earth, um, coming out as a king in all of his regalia. But what does he do? He comes as this tiny, precious little baby in a basically like a wooden crate filled with hay, surrounded by farm animals um, after his mom and dad were were sent away again and again and again, rejected again and again from in after in after in. And so if you ever feel rejected, forgotten, looked over, remember that Christ has already walked that path and he walks it with you now and offers special gifts of grace and humility um, I like to think like kind of like the secrets of the universe. Like anybody could recognize again a king in all his regalia coming into 
town or coming into the kingdom, anybody could recognize like this being floating down from a cloud or appearing in the midst of a bolt of lightning. But not everybody gets like the the tiny, fragile little baby dependent on other human beings in this dark little manger. Like there's there's a hiddenness there. And if we can get past the um, or if we can have patience with, if we can let our guard down against the humility of that situation, it, it's like we're like we pass the test to receive the the secret contained within that. And I don't mean this in like a Gnostic kind of way, like only the few get this secret knowledge from Jesus. No, it's there for everybody. But um, if we if we don't let go of our pride, our arrogance, our attachment to worldly worldly things, then we miss it. But if we can let go of those things, if we can unburden ourselves, if we can lay them at the feet of Christ, then it's like, as we talked about in last week's episode, we can like, like the camel, like let go of those burdens, enter the city gate, and then look up at like, whoa, this is what you're about, Lord, and this is what you have to offer, and this is what leads to happiness. And there's something like uh, like an intimacy there. Again, if we have the king parading down the street in his regalia, God floating down in a cloud, God appearing after a bolt of lightning, there's th- those things point to truths and realities in God. So God is regal. God is um, otherworldly. God is, you know, powerful and awesome and attention-getting like a bolt of lightning. So that's all true of God. Um, but the thing, but the thing that um, is easy, easy to miss and is actually stronger and more powerful than the above mentioned is his humility and. Um, that that closeness, that intimacy he offers. Again, the second person of the Trinity, uh, God himself, wants to be in relationship with us, wants to be in communion with us, wants to be in conversation with us through prayer each day. Like, why? <laughs> God, you're good. You're fine. You don't need me. But um, because he's good, so not because I'm good, because God is good, he wants to be in relationship with me and wants to invite me more deeply into that goodness. And that's just so beautiful and humble and, again, points to like the intimacy of God and the intimacy to which he invites us. I think um, of this, there was a picture going around the internet. This is probably at least a decade ago at this point. Of uh, The picture was of a garden statue, maybe like three feet tall, and then this little girl who was probably no more than two years old. And whoever took the picture captured this moment where this little girl, she's standing on her tippy toes and like kind of like reaching up conversationally to the Blessed Mother statue as though she's like telling her about her day and like, this is what I'm doing. And and it's just so cute and intimate in that like this little girl has this relationship or, you know, knows to some degree that she has this relationship. I mean, in the moment she was probably just talking to the statue like it was a doll or I don't know, fictional character, but it speaks to um, the truth of of we do have that relationship with God and with the Blessed Mother and the angels and saints, um, even though we can't see them or sense their presence necessarily, they are in relationship with us and want to converse with us, want us to converse with them, and um, in doing so, draw us closer. So in the case of God, draws closer to himself. In the case of the angels and saints, draws closer to the God whom we all know and love. I think too of my mom who had two knee surgeries throughout her life. And after one of the surgeries, she couldn't bend her knee very well. And so we, one day we were going into church, you know, as we're going into the pew, we're all genuflecting and my mom couldn't genuflect. And so she kind of bows her head, looks up and then blows a kiss to the tabernacle. (laughs) And as she's scooting into the pew, we're like, Mom, did you just blow kisses to Jesus? And she was like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. Like, that's so cute. And like, what we should be striving for. Like, Jesus is a bud. I mean, Jesus is uh, the infinite God, creator and ruler of the universe. But he's also in our hearts and wants a relationship where we blow him kisses. (laughs) So God bless you, Gina Pine. Uh, I think that's, I think my mom was onto something because we can think of, you know, the gospel passage where Jesus says we must be like the little children to enter heaven. Uh, We must be, as he strives for this intimate relationship with us, we must be comfortable with him. Like, you know, what's up, Jesus? I love you. And thanks for loving me. Jesus doesn't want us or call us to be like the little children because 
like he's knocking us down a peg or reminding us like he's the father and we're the children. Um, but he, he invites us, commands us to be like the little children because children can often perceive reality more rightly. They're not, uh, Bishop Barron actually talks about this somewhat frequently. They're not self-conscious in the sense that like they, before they say something, they think about how they will be perceived or before they ask a question, you know, they worry, what will people think of me? They just say what they think and they ask the question and they look around at the world oftentimes with wonder and awe and think like, wow, this, (laughs) we have a slug problem in our house right now. And the kids are just like, wowed by these gross little slugs like they're they're weirded out by them but also like mom this one looks like a leopard with all the spots this is so cool and so gross and it's like that's that's really what creation the beauty of creation calls forth from us like it's it's wonderful it's awesome it's scary it's gross it's cool and children intuitively recognize that G.K. Chesterton in his autobiography of St. Francis of Assisi said that because he was a humble man, he was close to the earth, he often stood on his head, so he has this whole bit about being the the jongleur de Dieu or the um, the juggler, like court jester of, of God. Um, he stood on his head, he was close to the earth, he was humble, he actually saw things rightly. So he saw in in standing on his head and viewing the world upside down, he saw that the things close to the earth, the, the lowly, the poor, the humble, were the closest to the top, actually, when when viewed upside down. And these, these large buildings and powerful edifices actually dangled by a thread far from the earth when viewed upside down. And so those who are humble can see more clearly, see more rightly. And those who are humble, as the Catechism says, Um, can more easily pray or can begin to pray, enter the life of prayer, and progress by the grace of God from there. There's this great line in the movie A Man for All Seasons about the life, or it details the end of the life of St. Thomas More. And St. Thomas More, who never strived, strove, for a position of authority is here. He's in the direct audience of, of the King of England. And he's speaking with a friend, Richard Rich, who is ambitious. He's recently read the work of Machiavelli, who says basically, like, get ahead in this life doing by whatever means necessary. Like, do what you have to do to get ahead. And so Richard Rich is asking St. Thomas More in this this great scene, like, okay, what can I do to get ahead, basically? And St. Thomas More, seeing this man's penchant for ambition, worldly ambition, and basically the sadness and perhaps eternal separation that could flow from that, he says, why not be a teacher? Like, don't strive after these these high positions in, in government. Why not be a teacher? Uh, you'd be a fine teacher, perhaps a great one. And Richard Rich says, if I was, if I were a teacher, who would know it? And St. Thomas More, the the actor who plays Thomas More has this great line. He says, in response to who would know it, Thomas More says, you, your pupils, your friends, God. Not a bad public that. So who would know that I was a great teacher? You, your pupils, your students, your friends, and God. Not a bad public, not a bad audience. And I think of that in terms of our prayer lives. We have the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, who made it all and sustains it all, who holds it all in existence. We have him as our, our public, our audience, um, before us every day, every hour, minute, second, moment of our lives. God God wants to be our audience. He wants to, to be in communion, in conversation with us. That is not a bad public. That's not a bad audience, not a bad conversation partner. And yet it's so easy to, you know, go about our day. There's so many other more important things to attend to um, and forget that the creator of the universe is right there, ready to chat, ready to receive our kisses in the tabernacle as we are not able to genuflect due to our knee surgeries. So how do I do it? How do I take advantage of this? The, the fact that God wants to, to chat with me every day. Um, if I feel like 
fumbly in my prayers or I feel distracted or like I don't know what words to say or how to do it, how to to be attentive in my heart to bring the center of my being before the Lord. Well, paragraphs 2585 through 2589 talk about the the beauty of the Psalms. So 2585 calls the Psalms the masterwork of prayer in the Old Testament. 2587 says the Psalms continue to teach us to pray. And then paragraph 2588 has this great line, though a given Psalm may reflect an event of the past, it still possesses such direct simplicity that it can be prayed in truth by men of all times and conditions. So even though the Psalms, this book in the Old Testament, was written millennia ago, um, it, it's timeless. So first of all, it's the Word of God. So the God is, uh, excuse me, the Word of God is living and present and speaks to every man, every woman in our circumstances um, across times and places. But we can use the, these, the Psalms are prayers attributed to, to King David. They're prayers that we can lift up. If we don't have the words, we don't quite know how to pray, what to say, we can take, let's say, one Psalm a day or take the responsorial Psalm from the day and just lift up, pray for the grace to lift up those words as our own. And if they don't feel like our own, that's okay. Fake it till we make it. Just pray the words, lift up the words. And over time, God will give us the grace to make those words our own. And so we'll end the first half of this episode with an invitation, a challenge. And that's this. Let's, between this week and next week's episode, let's set our alarm for 20 minutes earlier than we normally get up in the morning. Um, And this might be a time of the year where you're doing that already. So let's see, November 20th, this episode airs, and it was, I think, November 5th-ish that we fell back. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm still getting up about an hour earlier than I normally do. So maybe you don't have to set your alarm. Maybe when you wake up and you're like, ugh, my alarm's not going to go off for a little while still, uh, instead of rolling back over, get up. And let's take, again, between this week and next week's episode, Let's, or the next time you listen to an episode of Catholic Light, let's get up a little earlier each day and then take either the psalm of the day. So you can go to usccb.org. There's a little menu at the top. Click on daily reading, and that'll bring you to the psalm of the day. Um, Or crack open your Bible, go to the book of Psalms, and just start with Psalm 1. And each day, pray one of the psalms. And if you want to take it a step further... Uh, as we we pray these psalms each day, we could do a little Lexio Divina. So as we as we read through, as we lift up, as we pray these psalms, we could just note a line or a couple words from the psalm that strikes our attention, and then let's write it on an index card or a little card and keep it in our pocket, our purse, our wallet. And when we have a moment, when we're standing on line somewhere or waiting at a traffic light, rather than checking our phones, let's bring out that card from our pocket, our wallet, our purse, and just read over it again. Read it, pray it, maybe begin to memorize it so that um, it becomes a part of our hearts, our minds, our lives, and eventually our prayer so that we're um, so that we're offering it up as our own prayer one day. I used to do this with uh, lines from the gospel when I would do Lexio Divina on the gospel passage for the day. I would write down a line or a quote from the gospel that, that really struck me. I would pop it in my purse, and then when I was waiting online somewhere or at a traffic light, I would pull it out, and I would actually try to memorize it so I could memorize more of Scripture. Now when I'm standing online or sitting at a traffic light, I'm usually fielding questions about you know, the day of the week or lunch bunch after school or what's on whose Christmas list, or I'm shushing someone who's asking rude questions about the customer in front of us. <laughs> so I was standing somewhere with Peter the other day, and this God bless this woman who was not that old. She was maybe like early 70s, walked by, and she's no more than three feet away from us. And Peter goes, hi, mom, look at that old lady. It's like, ah, <laughs> sorry, ma'am. Hopefully you didn't hear that. You're not that old. You look great, by the way. So if you don't quite have the opportunity because you're fielding questions or doing other things at traffic lights and while you're standing online, still take a moment to write those lines of scripture down, tuck them away. And then when you do have the opportunity, bring them out and Again, lift them up, read over them, pray them, try to commit them to heart so that they become a part of our prayer lives. And so we pray, Lord, you have the words of everlasting life. To whom else shall we go? 
We thank you for coming before us each day, each hour, each moment of our lives and inviting us to come before you to bring the center of our being, our hearts into communion with you and your heart. And we pray for the grace to open our hearts to receive you, to open the center of our lives, our beings, and to receive more of you, to receive all that you wish to pour out upon us. We thank you for loving us, for having a plan for us. We thank you for revealing yourself to us, communicating your love and your truth and your goodness and your beauty to us through the scriptures and to us through so many dimensions of creation. And we pray again for the grace to receive it all well, um, to use the, the beautiful tools that you have given us to draw closer to you and to help others draw closer to you as well. As we move towards the Advent season in preparation for Christmas, uh, please inspire us in our prayer lives. Help us take uh, a new step in a new direction, um, or maybe not a new direction, just closer to you, so that, again, we, be we can become the men and women you created us to be, to experience that fulfillment, that happiness that you have for each of us. We offer this up in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll take a brief break and return on the second half of the episode to read paragraphs 2558 through 2597. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read paragraphs 2558 through 2597 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Part 4, Christian Prayer. Section 1, Prayer in the Christian Life. Great is the mystery of the faith. The Church professes this mystery in the Apostles' Creed, Part 1, and celebrates it in the Sacramental Liturgy, Part 2, so that the life of the faithful may be conformed to Christ and the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father, Part 3. This mystery then requires that the faithful believe in it, that they celebrate it, and that they live it, excuse me, live from it in a vital and personal relationship with the loving, living, and true God. This relationship is prayer. What is prayer? For me, prayer is a surge of the heart. It is a simple look turned toward heaven. It is a cry of recognition and of love, embracing both trial and joy. And that's from St. Therese of Lisieux. Prayer is God's gift. Prayer is the raising of one's mind and heart to God or the requesting of good things from God. But when we pray, do we speak from the height of our pride and will or out of the depths of a humble and contrite heart? He who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility is the foundation of prayer. Only when we humbly acknowledge that we do not know how to pray as we ought are we ready to receive freely the gift of prayer. Man is a beggar before God. If you knew the gift of God... The wonder of prayer is revealed beside the well where we come seeking water. There, Christ comes to meet every human being. It is he who first seeks us and asks us for a drink. Jesus thirsts. His asking arises from the depths of God's desire for us. Whether we realize it or not, prayer is the encounter of God's thirst with ours. God thirsts that we may thirst for him. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Paradoxically, our prayer of petition is a response to the plea of the living God. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Prayer is the response of faith to the free promise of salvation and also a response of love to the thirst of the only Son of God. Prayer as Covenant Where does prayer come from? Whether prayer is expressed in words or gestures, it is the whole man who prays. But in naming the source of prayer, Scripture speaks sometimes of the soul or the spirit, but most often of the heart, more than a thousand times. According to Scripture, it is the heart that prays. If our heart is far from God, the words of prayer are in vain. The heart is the dwelling place where I am, where I live. According to the Semitic or biblical expression, the heart is the place to which I withdraw. The heart is our hidden center, beyond the grasp of our reason and of others. Only the Spirit of God can fathom the human heart and know it fully. The heart is the place of decision, deeper than our psychic drives. It is the place of truth, where we choose life or death. It is the place of encounter, because as image of God, we live in relation. It is the place of covenant. <clears throat> 
Christian prayer is a covenant relationship between God and man in Christ. It is the action of God and of man springing forth from both the Holy Spirit and ourselves, wholly directed to the Father, in union with the human will of the Son of God made man. Prayer as Communion In the New Covenant, prayer is the living relationship of the children of God with their Father, who is good beyond measure, with His Son Jesus Christ and with the Holy Spirit. The grace of the kingdom is the union of the entire holy and royal trinity, with the whole human spirit. Thus, the life of prayer is the habit of being in the presence of the thrice holy God and in communion with Him. This communion of life is always possible because through baptism, we have already been united with Christ. Prayer is Christian insofar as it is communion with Christ and extends throughout the church, which is his body. Its dimensions are those of Christ's love. Chapter 1, The Revelation of Prayer The Universal Call to Prayer Man is in search of God. In the act of creation, God calls every being from nothingness into existence. Crowned with glory and honor, man is, after the angels, capable of acknowledging how majestic is the name of the Lord in all the earth. Even after losing through his sin his likeness to God, man remains an image of his creator and retains the desire for the one who calls him into existence. All religions bear witness to men's essential search for God. God calls man first. Man may forget his creator or hide far from his face. He may run after idols or accuse the deity of having abandoned him. Yet the living and true God tirelessly calls each person to that mysterious encounter known as prayer. In prayer, the faithful God's initiative of love always comes first. Our own first step is always a response. As God gradually reveals himself and reveals man to himself, prayer appears as a reciprocal call, a covenant drama. Through words and actions, this drama engages the heart. It unfolds throughout the whole history of salvation. Article 1 in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the revelation of prayer comes between the fall and the restoration of man, that is, between God's sorrowful call to his first children. Where are you? What is this that you have done? And the response of God's only Son on coming into the world. Lo, I have come to do your will, O God. Prayer is bound up with human history, for it is in the relationship with God in historical events. Creation Source of Prayer Prayer is lived in the first place beginning with the realities of creation. The first nine chapters of Genesis describe this relationship with God as an offering of the firstborn of Abel's flock, as the invocation of the divine name at the name of Enosh, and as walking with God. Noah's offering is pleasing to God, who blesses him and through him all creation, because his heart was upright and undivided. Noah, like Enoch before him, walks with God. This kind of prayer is lived by many righteous people in all religions. In his indefectible covenant with every living creature, God has always called people to prayer. But it is above all beginning with our father Abraham that prayer is revealed in the Old Testament. God's promise and the prayer of faith. When God calls him, Abraham goes forth as the Lord had told him. Abraham's heart is entirely submissive to the word, and so he obeys. Such attentiveness of the heart, whose decisions are made according to God's will, is essential to prayer, while the words used only while the words used count only in relation to it. Abraham's prayer is expressed first by deeds. A man of silence, he constructs an altar to the Lord at each stage of his journey. Only later does Abraham's first prayer in words appear, a veiled complaint reminding God of his promises, which seem unfulfilled. Thus, one aspect of the drama of prayer appears from the beginning, the test of faith in the fidelity of God. Because Abraham believed in God and walked in his presence and in covenant with him, the patriarch is ready to welcome a mysterious guest into his tent. Abraham's remarkable hospitality at Mamre foreshadows the annunciation of the true son of the promise. After that, once God had confided his plan, Abraham's heart is attuned to his Lord's compassion for men, and he dares to intercede for them with bold confidence. As a final stage in the purification of his faith, Abraham, who had received the promises, is asked to sacrifice the son God had given him. Abraham's faith does not weaken. God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, for he considered considered that God was able to raise men even from the dead. And so the father of believers is conformed to the likeness of the father who will not spare his own son, but will deliver him up for us all. Prayer restores man to God's likeness and enables him to share in the power of God's love that saves the multitude. God renews his promise to Jacob, the ancestor of the twelve tribes of Israel. 
Before confronting his elder brother Esau, Jacob wrestles all night with a mysterious figure who refuses to reveal his name, but who blesses him before leaving him at dawn. From this account, the spiritual tradition of the church has retained the symbol of prayer as a battle of faith and as the triumph of perseverance. Moses and the Prayer of the Mediator Once the promise begins to be fulfilled, Passover, the Exodus, the gift of the law, and the ratification of the covenant, the prayer of Moses becomes the most striking example of intercessory prayer, which will be fulfilled in the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Here again, the initiative is God's. From the midst of the burning bush, he calls Moses. This event will remain one of the primordial images of prayer in the spiritual tradition of Jews and Christians alike. When the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob calls Moses to be his servant, it is because he is the living God who wants men to live. God reveals himself in order to save them, though he does not do this alone or despite them. He calls Moses to be his messenger, an associate in his compassion, his work of salvation. There is something of a divine plea in this mission, and only after long debate does Moses attune his own will to that of the Savior God. But in the dialogue in which God confides in him, Moses also learns how to pray. He balks, makes excuses, above all questions, and it is in response to his question that the Lord confines, excuse me, confides his ineffable name, which will be revealed through his mighty deeds. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Moses' prayer is characteristic of contemplative prayer by which God's servant remains faithful to his mission. Moses converses with God often and at length, climbing the mountain to hear and entreat him and coming down to the people to repeat the words of his God for their guidance. Moses is entrusted with all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly, not in riddles. For Moses was very humble, more so than anyone else on the face of the earth. From this intimacy with the faithful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, Moses drew strength and determination for his intercession. He does not pray for himself, but for the people whom God made his own. Moses already intercedes for them during the battle with the Amalekites and prays to obtain healing for Miriam. But it is chiefly after their apostasy that Moses stands in the breach before God in order to save the people. The arguments of his prayer, for intercession is also a mysterious battle, will inspire the boldness of the great intercessors among the Jewish people and in the church. God is love. He is therefore righteous and faithful. He cannot contradict himself. He must remember his marvelous deeds since his glory is at stake, and he cannot forsake this people that bears his name. David and the Prayer of the King The prayer of the people of God flourishes in the shadow of God's dwelling place, first the Ark of the Covenant and later the Temple. At first the leaders of the people, the shepherds and the prophets, teach them to pray. The infant Samuel must have learned from his brother Hannah, excuse me, his mother, Hannah, how to stand before the Lord, and from the priest Eli, how to speak, how to listen to his word. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Later, he will also know the cost and consequence of intercession. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. David is par excellence, the king after God's own heart, the shepherd who prays for his people and prays in their name. His submission to the will of God, his praise, and his repentance will be a model for the prayer of the people. His prayer, the prayer of God's anointed, is a faithful adherence to the divine promise and expresses a loving and joyful trust in God, the only King and Lord. In the Psalms, David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is the first prophet of Jewish and Christian prayer. The prayer of Christ, the true Messiah and Son of David, will reveal and fulfill the meaning of this prayer. The temple of Jerusalem, the house of prayer that David wanted to build, will be the work of his son Solomon. The prayer at the dedication of the temple relies on God's promise and covenant, on the active presence of his name among his people, recalling his mighty deeds at the Exodus. The king lifts his hands toward heaven and begs the Lord on his own behalf, on behalf of the entire people and of the generations yet to come, for the forgiveness of their sins and for their daily needs, so that the nations may know that he is the only God and that the heart of his people may belong wholly and entirely to him. Elijah, the prophets and conversion of heart. For the people of God, the temple was to be the place of their education in prayer. Pilgrimages, feasts and sacrifices, the evening offering, the incense and the bread of the presence or showbread, 
all these signs of the holiness and glory of God most high and most near were appeals to and ways of prayer. But ritualism often encouraged an excessively external worship. The people needed education in faith and conversion of heart. This was the mission of the prophets, both before and after the exile. Elijah is the father of the prophets, the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Elijah's name, the Lord is my God, foretells the people's cry in response to his prayer on Mount Carmel. St. James refers to Elijah in order to encourage us to pray. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. After Elijah had learned mercy during his retreat at the Wadi Cherith, he teaches the widow of Zarephath to believe in the word of God and confirms her faith by his urgent prayer. God brings the widow's child back to life. The sacrifice on Mount Carmel is a decisive test for the faith of the people of God. In response to Elijah's plea, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, the Lord's fire consumes the Holocaust at the time of the evening oblation. The Eastern liturgies repeat Elijah's plea in the Eucharistic epiclesis. Finally, taking the desert road that leads to the place where the living and true God reveals himself to his people, Elijah, like Moses before him, hides in a cleft of the rock until the mysterious presence of God has passed by. But only on the mountain of the transfiguration will Moses and Elijah behold the unveiled face of him whom they sought. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines in the face of Christ, crucified and risen. In their one-to-one encounters with God, the prophets draw light and strength for their mission. Their prayer is not flight from this unfaithful world, but rather attentiveness to the word of God. At times their prayer is an argument or a complaint, but it is always an intercession that awaits and prepares for the intervention of the Savior God, the Lord of history. The Psalms, the Prayer of the Assembly. From the time of David to the coming of the Messiah, texts appearing in these sacred books show a deepening in prayer for oneself and in prayer for others. Thus, the Psalms were gradually collected into the five books of the Psalter, or praises, the masterwork of prayer in the Old Testament. The Psalms both nourished and expressed the prayer of the people of God gathered during the great feasts at Jerusalem and each Sabbath in the synagogues. Their prayer is inseparably personal and communal. It concerns both those who are praying and all men. The Psalms arose from the communities of the Holy Land and the Diaspora, but embrace all creation. Their prayer recalls the saving events of the past, yet extends into the future, even to the end of history. It commemorates the promises God has already kept and awaits the Messiah who will fulfill them definitively. Prayed by Christ and fulfilled in him, the Psalms remain essential to the prayer of the Church. The Psalter is the book in which the Word of God becomes man's prayer. In other books of the Old Testament, the words proclaim God's works and bring to light the mystery they contain. The words of the psalmist, sung for God, both expressed express and acclaim the Lord's saving works. The same spirit inspires both God's work and man's response. Christ will unite the two. In him, the Psalms continue to teach us how to pray. The Psalter's many forms of prayer take shape both in the liturgy of the temple and in the human heart. Whether hymns or prayers of lamentation or thanksgiving, whether individual or communal, whether royal chants, songs of pilgrimage, or wisdom meditations, the Psalms are a mirror of God's marvelous deeds in the history of his people, as well as reflections of the human experience of the psalmist. Though a given psalm may reflect an event of the past, it still possesses such direct simplicity that it can be prayed in truth by men of all times and conditions. Certain constant characteristics appear throughout the psalms. Simplicity and spontaneity of prayer. The desire for God himself through and with all that is good in his creation. The distraught situation of the believer who in his preferential love for the Lord is exposed to a host of enemies and temptations, but who waits upon what the faithful God will do in the certitude of his love and in submission to his will. The prayer of the psalms is always sustained by praise. That is why the title of this collection, as handed down to us, is so fitting, The Praises. Collected for the assembly's worship, the Psalter both sounds the call to prayer and sings the response to that call, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. What is more pleasing than a psalm? David expresses it well. Praise the Lord, for a psalm is good. Let there be praise of our God with gladness and grace. Yes, a psalm is a blessing, on the lips of the people, praise of God, the assembly's homage, a general acclamation, a word that speaks for all, the voice of the church, a confession of faith in song. That was said by St. Ambrose. In brief, prayer is the raising of one's mind and heart to God, or the requesting of good things from God. 
God tirelessly calls each person to this mysterious encounter with himself. Prayer unfolds throughout the whole history of salvation as a reciprocal call between God and man. The prayer of Abraham and Jacob is presented as a battle of faith marked by trust in God's faithfulness and by certitude in the victory promised to perseverance. The prayer of Moses responds to the living God's initiative for the salvation of his people. It foreshadows the prayer of intercession of the unique mediator, Christ Jesus. The prayer of the people of God flourished in the shadow of the dwelling place of God's presence on earth, the Ark of the Covenant and the Temple, under the guidance of their shepherds, especially King David and of the prophets. The prophets summoned the people to conversion of heart, and while zealously seeking the face of God, like Elijah, they interceded for the people. The Psalms constitute the masterwork of prayer in the Old Testament. They present two inseparable qualities, the personal and the communal. They extend to all dimensions of history, recalling God's promises already fulfilled and looking for the coming of the Messiah. Prayed and fulfilled in Christ, the Psalms are an essential and permanent element of the prayer of the church. They are suitable for men of every condition and time. This brings us to the end of our reading selection, the end of our episode. Thanks for joining me for another week. Between this week and next week's episode, please pray for me, and I'll be praying for you. God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends, and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.